Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Today is episode number seven, and as usual, you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. My guest today on Flavors Unknown is Chef Michael Fotege from Olemé in Austin. I am lucky enough with my job to have been able to visit Austin several times, and I attended several times as well the South by Southwest conference. And even with my French accent, it seems that I survived every time I go there. This is where I met Chef Michael Fotege, who is the nicest guy I ever met. He is always calm, always smiling. I love his food, and I'm not the only one, because Michael Fotege got the award as a finalist uh, at the James Beard Foundation in 2018. He had on the menu a special cabbage dish, and I'm not a cabbage person, but I really love that dish that he serves with the Alabama white barbecue sauce and his famous boiled peanut dish that he's going to describe the making of in the podcast. Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm great, Emmanuel. How are you? I'm very good. I'm really excited to have you on Flavors Unknown today. I've been um, to Olamé in Austin, you know, several times, and it's always a luscious, sensual uh, experience with uh, your dishes over there. So I'm I'm pleased to have you today. Thank you very much. It's always a, it's always great to have you in the restaurant, and appreciate all the kind words. How would you describe your job in ten words? Ten words is a to pick out ten words. Of course, is like is a challenging thing, but I came up with. Consuming, uh, rewarding, demanding, educational, evolving, creative, committed, familial, and relational, and then grounding. Grounding was really just in place of humiliating. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, what's a better way to say humiliating? Tell me more about this one. You know, each of these kind of talks to a broad a broad sense of of what what it takes, but to me, the sense of of what I'm trying to say in these words is that it takes everything you got. It's very hard to do, but at the same time, it's incredibly rewarding. And there's a feeling of um, that you that you have to count on the people around you, and you have to to invest in those relationships in the same way that you invest in everything in the business. And I truly believe that there's really without my my full commitment. And my full engagement of those around me that, that there would be no success without those kinds of ideas. And and then, yeah, the, the, the grounding portion of it is that every time you think that you're on top of it or that it is that you've got it figured out, that there's something that comes around the corner that makes you really check yourself and think about whether or not you are really in control of, of your own destiny. Can you describe your love and passion for Southern cooking and the Southern pantry? Southern food is the part of my life that feels most in tune with my childhood and my family and mostly my mother and my grandmother and and how I identify. Growing up, I spent a lot of time in Tennessee, which is where my mother was from. She moved, my mother moved from Tennessee to Texas when she was pregnant with me. 
it's always felt the food and the kind of uh, approach to food has always felt like me and and who I was and and my mother has always been such a a big part of my life and also such a food focused person that that it's always felt like who I was and identified as a child my grandmother would take me to you know I we went to like the Ole Miss Navy football game in a in a bowl game and identified as kind of being of the south or being of Mississippi or being of Tennessee and so it really speaks to kind of how I identify myself in the world at large and then more specifically within the food community and 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 the food ways. Yes, even if you're traveling in Europe or in France, I've seen on your Instagram that you are wearing a proudly t-shirt from uh, Texas, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you know, I was I had a, actually my most recent trip to France, I had a Southern Foodways Alliance sticker that and, um, I had intentions of of putting somewhere and and leaving it there, but you know, of course, got distracted by all of the delicious and uh, the foods and and just the everything that was around me. I I didn't take the time to follow through on my on my <laughs> endeavor, but I did take some good pictures. <laughs> you should have uh, stick it at uh, the back of uh, the very nice old uh, car that uh, you got. Uh, that was from the, the Second World War, correct? Yes, it was. It was a, what, a Citroën. Yeah, it's a Citroën. Probably no one knows here what the Citroën is, but it <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> but I, it I, was a I think beautiful the car. Citroën would have been very nice at the back of that car. <laughs> the French <laughs> would have react. What's happening here? The, the name of your of your restaurant, Olomé, is an homage to your mother and grandmother, correct? My mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and my great-great-grandmother. Wow. And now my daughter. And now your daughter. Okay. Yes. On the website of your restaurant page, we can read the taste of the South with a new modern spin. How can you explain this? And what, what do you mean by the, the modern twist? And can you give us some examples? What I have always said about what we endeavor to do at at Olame is to take ideas from Southern food that are familiar and present them to you either through technique or presentation in a way that, that might surprise you. I think that Southern food is a cuisine that comes with a lot of preconception and we're hopeful to offer an alternative to that, to those preconceptions in a way that, that excites and surprises. So you mean it's not on, only about butter? Yeah. <laughs> to be clear, it is very much about butter. <laughs> but but yeah, I think taking Southern food does have so many, at least in popular culture of the last decade, has been given kind of a, by way of folks like Paula Dean, who was incredibly successful in creating an idea of what Southern food meant to her. And that in many ways was adopted by a lot of people as the definition of Southern food. I've been collecting Southern cookbooks for a really long time. I have quite a few of them. And if you look at the books that were written initially, if you look at you know the, the oldest American cookbooks are Southern food cookbooks. And if you look at them, they 
talk about this idea that that is very important to me and us and the restaurant is it's about seasonality and locality. So Southern food at its root is truly about what's available right now coming out of the garden, as well as what have we put away for a rainy day or for a later season? You know, can we preserve something that is of the summer and then present it again in the winter uh, in a different manner? Southern food at its kind of what I would consider root is very much about what is of modern restaurant operation and, and how chefs and cooks and restaurant folks are looking at cuisine and, and the offering today. I feel that Southern food really is very much also representative of American food in general. I think it's, I think it is to me the most indicative of what American food has been and continues to evolve as, you know, the Southern food is these days influenced by foods from, you know, Southeast Asia. I mean, the, the populations in uh, Southern Louisiana and Southeast Texas and places like that continue to cause the cuisine itself to evolve in a way that that is not what people think it might be. You, you have this example of the Southeast Asia or Vietnamese community in, uh, in New Orleans, but you have as well as um, a Korean you know, influence in Kentucky and then Indian influence in Memphis area. So it's, it's really this uh, food renaissance that they're talking about, you know, from like happening in the, the South with the influence of uh, those new ingredients coming from, you know, those communities. And, and I guess chefs are experiencing those ingredients and including them in their new way of cooking. Yep. Yep, very much so. Can you give us an example of iconic produce and seasonings or aromatics that you would associate with the, the taste of the South? In my representation of the South, personally, I try to keep it uh, much in line with who I am and what my background speaks to. And I, I think that uh, chefs who are using ingredients from all over the place to explore is, is a really great thing. But for me, I think that staying focused on ingredients that feel authentic to me are, is important. I, I don't, you know, in, in this day and age, I will say I try not to appropriate cultures that are not mine. I understand that Southern food in general comes from a culture that is not my culture in a lot of ways, or in a lot of ways comes from a culture that is not my culture, the slave community and African Americans. And so I, I understand that there are a lot of those influences in the food that I cook. I feel more comfortable that I'm not appropriating them because I'm seeing them through the lens of, of time. But as far as me using ingredients that are from Southeast Asia, I, I choose not to because, because I don't want to take something that's not mine. I think that I love those ingredients and I love to eat them and experience them. And I don't necessarily have to have them from the people that are of that culture. But my choice as a creative is to represent myself in the most kind of authentic way that I can. But those individuals probably are using those ingredients to 
give a different twist or modern twist, right, to some of those southern dishes, mix it. So, yeah, I agree. I think I think a twist, and also they're using the tools that are in their tool chest and the in the natural tool chest, the tool chest that makes sense to them. And so, I think kind of also what I'm getting at is like I'm using the stuff that makes the most sense to me. Can you give us an example? What kind of modern twist, if we, you know, are you applying to an iconic product from, you know, from the south? And then I just want try to understand that example. Yeah. So, so like a, so like an idea for me is like um, buttermilk. You know, I like to take buttermilk and I like to cook it until it caramelizes itself. And all of the southern food cookbooks that I own, I don't, I don't know if I've seen that. You know, other cultures do it. Cajeta, which is done with, with goat's milk, is pretty well known. But I don't really, I don't see much of that. I like to work with a classic product called Benny Seed, which is a distant, way back in time, distant relative of sesame seed. I like to take those and just cook them until what you would consider, we call them burnt Benny Seeds. We really aren't doing anything new or or modern I'm not going to do anything that nobody has ever done before, but I am going to do some things in my way that feel and the, and the way that I combine the things that will be original. And so I, you know, I think that for me, from a creative perspective, I'm always trying to think about how do I keep the soul in the food? I don't like to take too much. I don't like to manipulate the food so much that it doesn't feel like it's got life within it. So to me, Southern food is so much about soul and representing yourself is so much about soul. So food has to have that kind of touchstone within it that makes you feel like you know it. And and so it's important that, that I don't get too modern or too techniquey or too, you know, we don't, we don't cook proteins at the restaurant in sous vide in circulated water baths. We roast everything on a plancha or in the oven. We because I I want us to to kind of have that cook from raw, not grittiness, but kind of what I would consider to be kind of authentic feel to it. So what is the the tool in the kitchen that's for you? You can't live without. I know already it's not going to be sous vide. <laughs> Yeah, it's not. It's actually, yeah, it's not a sous vide machine. You know, I think that, I think the the tool that I, I most frequently use is probably a Vitamix, a blender. I think that that's probably the the tool that most used. And, and that's probably the case in most restaurants. The the tool that's probably not, not in most restaurants that I really love and that can go everywhere with you is um, this very specific pastry card by a company called Matfer. It's M-A-T-F-E-R. It's just the best pastry card in the world. And in certain places, this pastry card is kind of ubiquitous. So, so let's go back in time a little bit. And I want to understand what compelled you to uh, become a chef. I was compelled to become a chef because I had tried a couple different careers. I had always cooked my entire life. I had always enjoyed cooking. I was always, as I got older, I was cooking for friends and was kind of facing a lot of 
of parties around cooking food for everyone. A close friend was a general manager of a restaurant and invited me in to, to come stage. I had no idea what that word meant. Um, and I showed up and I had a, a, a strong sports background in high school and always spent not only in high school, but, but growing up. And I spent about two hours in my first kitchen and recognized the, the correlation between the team and the coordination that it required and the leadership that it required. And, and then on top of it, that it was also in line with creating things that were delicious. So I really, it took me about two hours to, to experience that and realize that this is what I want to do. I mean, I, I knew really quickly after stepping into a professional kitchen that I wanted to be there and, and be in, in this environment for the rest of my career. It was almost like one of those moments where the clouds break and you see the sky and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this all makes perfect sense to me. Uh, who has been your most uh, influential mentors? My most influential mentor is, is Jonathan Benno. He is a New York chef. He was the chef who was the chef de cuisine at the opening of Per Se. He left there and opened Lincoln Restaurant or Ristorante in uh, Lincoln Center and is about to open his namesake restaurant down in, I guess it's it's now called Nomad and it's called Benno. And there's also Leonelli, which is, is the more casual concept right outside the, the doors of, of Benno. But I learned the most from him. He's the one that I am always looking to for guidance or drawing on experiences with him to kind of help me figure out my own way. So what did you learn from, from that guy? I learned a lot about professionalism. I learned a lot about grit. I learned a lot about taking pride in, in your work. I think that he is in the New York restaurant community. He is very well known as a systems guy, but also, you know, kind of your, your consummate professional. And I learned a lot about heart. Lincoln was a, a $22 million project to open. We had been open for, I think we'd been open for about three weeks. His wife was about to have their first child and he and I were working together and he turned and looked at me and said, when are your parents going to come and dine? And it was such an impactful moment for me because from my perspective, this man has $22 million worth of weight on his shoulder, plus a newborn child coming, as well as a team of probably 70 people. And he's talking to me about what's going on with me. And, and it was a, it was a really big moment for me to, to recognize that he is engaged in so on so many levels that he has the ability to think about where I'm at as well. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. The human dimension in, in the leadership is one of the things that you learn there too. Oh yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really great way to, to put it. And emotional intelligence, I guess. Yeah. He also yelled at me a lot, but that was not in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, is, he's, he's definitely uh, let me have it a few times, but, but I also learned a lot. And, and, and coming from the background that I came from, as far as in you know, athletics and things like that, and I responded very well to that kind of coaching. Describe to me your creative process, if you can. I like to start in the market 
or at the farm, you know, I go to two different farms every Wednesday and Saturday, go to the farmer's market after those farms on Saturdays. And so with me, it usually starts with an idea that happens in those places. It requires me to kind of ruminate on it and think about it and write it down. And then typically I will pull together the concept for a dish and then I will execute it and then I will taste it and I will taste it with the, with my, I have a, a team that operate as my chef de cuisine at the restaurant. It's a, a couple, it's a man and a woman that are married. Um, we usually sit down and taste the food together and then talk about it. And then it continues to evolve and it evolves. Uh, we will put it on the menu and then we will continue to evolve it for however much time it takes until we're happy with it. So it's the process for me is a, it's a rather long process and I'm, and it's always kind of about tinkering and sometimes the arrival at complete is quick and sometimes it's not. And then one of the things that I enjoy about our process at, at Olame is that a dish can go on and can arrive at what we consider to be a place that we're happy with it. And then it can continue to evolve out of necessity because of what is available at the market. So, you know, as we call them sets, if we've put a, a set on with a pork, the set can evolve based off of, well, we're out of, you know, peaches ended. So now let's talk about pears or at this point we're working with apples and, you know, at some point apples will end and, and maybe there will be another substitute for an apple that will be suitable. Sometimes you find yourself in a place where the dish the evolution caused by necessity is in a, or helps you arrive in a place where you like it even more. And then sometimes you try something and you don't like it and you have to, to start with something new. But it's for, for me, it's a, it's a process that takes time, takes, takes a lot of kind of tinkering. So there's two aspects that I would like to um, dig into if, uh, if I may. The, First one is you're talking about those concepts of set. Do you build a lot of your menus around those uh, set, as you call them? So that's mean that uh, that where you, if I understand it correctly, when you have um, almost like a structure that you can and play with different ingredients that varies with the season, correct? What's available? Is it um, main part of your menus? So we have two sides of the menu. One side of the menu is small plate items and dishes that singularly stand on their own and would be kind of focused on one item. Like right now, our tartare is about peppers or sweet peppers. And, and then, you know, another item is kind of about this, a smoky item. And then the, the other side of our menu, which is more about the proteins is, Kind of the way that it is structured is always there's always a fish, there's always a chicken, there's always a pork, and there's always a a vegetarian item as well as a beef. So with those items, we would consider them sets, and they would be about what is what is available and what is happening at the market. Every dish on the menu can kind of take a substitution here or there, but as far as kind of what we would kind of consider classically entrees. The sets do kind of evolve around a, a set of principles or ideas about the dish, the kind of the focus of the dish and what they will, you know, what kind of ideas and principles will fit with that 
set of the, the corresponding set. So can you give us an example of uh, several dishes that evolve throughout the seasons uh, based on one of those proteins that you mentioned? So I don't know, pick the one you want, like fish or the chicken. We had a pork dish that we put on early summer and it had a peach component as well as basically, basically it was like a, a room temperature farro salad with a peach component and then a, a ham component, which we, we call like a ham soubis and then a burnt squash component. Over the course of the summer, as those peaches went out of season, we subbed in pear and as we use um, sorrel within the farro salad. So as we ran out of sorrel, we would add a little bit more lemon juice to make up for it. And the squashes naturally would change, you know, the squash component naturally changed as well based off of the individual squashes that were available. The other elements when I wanted to dig into was at the beginning of the process where you said that the idea comes usually when you are at the market. And I guess the creative process starts for you at the produce level. What happens in the first phase of the creation you know, process for you? When you see the, produ- the produce or the product that um, you know, inspires you, what, what's the next step after that? There's two kind of ways that it works for me. One is I see something and I really want to work with it. We're just problem solving. So, And then the other way is that I see something and it makes me think of something else that I could, you know, essentially recreate with that item. Can you give us a specific example for for each of them? One example is like, I love kohlrabi. And not only do I like the flavor of kohlrabi, but but I also like the way it looks and I like the texture of it. And and I just, something I really think is great. So, you know, I find, at one point I found myself how do I want to cook with kohlrabi? Well, that was it. Like, what do, what do I want to do? And the place where I arrived was so, well, I know that foods in that, you know, vegetables in that family do do well with kind of rich, rich, heavy flavor. So I ended up poaching it in beef fat and using it as a component on a beef dish. The example in another way is green beans. I love cream spinach to a pro, to a, to accompany a, a beef as well. And if we can use cream spinach, why can't we do cream green beans? And so, you know, those are two different kind of ideas around the two. Well, those are kind of the two different ways that it works for me. It's one of them is how do I, how do I use this? So let's poach it and be fat. The other one is, oh, I can, I can use this and substitute of spinach. I can use green beans and substitute of spinach and, and be perfectly happy with the result there too. So what ingredients are irreplaceable to you? I, I use a lot of dairy and have always been pretty heavy with dairy. So yes, I do use quite a bit of butter. And yes, I do use quite a bit of like cream or milk or from fresh. I spend my, a great portion of my day on Saturday seeking out vegetables, buying vegetables, talking about vegetables. Aside from vegetables, I would say dairy products. I love cheese. I can't imagine a world without cheese. <laughs> I don't you there. Coming from a country that had more than 300 varieties of cheese. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
and some amazing. Right? I mean, just. I hope you tasted some of them when you were in France recently. Oh, we had so much good cheese. It was just so. Uh, there's there's a cheese called called a uh, Montdor, which is just it's like all the things that I want in the cheese. It's just fantastic. What's unique and unfamiliar ingredients? like almost unknown ingredients that you have discovered recently or finding their way into your menu. I know that you have an affinity for the peanut dish that we offer. And I think that serving those peanuts in the way that we choose to serve them is pretty unique and interesting. And and the story behind them is really remarkable as well. Boiled peanuts are a roadside snack in the South. I mean, you, you walk into a, a gas station and there is a pot of warm peanuts within the shell just hanging out. And from when we opened Olame, I always wanted to serve some kind of a boiled peanut. I always thought it would be a good nod to the South, but how do you how do you do it in such a way that that isn't as messy as the roadside side? Because essentially, you know, you you get the it's a brine. Uh, you get the the salt solution all over your hands when you're eating them. And so how, how can you do it in a way that uh, a little more easy to eat? And so I tried to buy green peanuts for a couple of years when your green peanuts, for one thing are very perishable. They don't hang out very well. And then also they're typically harvested in such grand amounts that asking somebody to portion off the amount that, I would need to serve in the restaurant was not nobody was really open to that idea. And partially because like the amount of effort that it would take for them to do that based off of what they could actually charge for that just didn't make sense. A couple of years ago, there is a man who opened a a mill, an organic mill. And it's our first mill here in in Austin. And I, and I think one of the first mills in Texas to be doing things in the in the way that he does them. He is milling uh, rare and uh, rare heirloom grains of superior quality. And the cool thing about what he does is that he contracts the farmers to grow the wheats or the corns for him, and he pays them in advance of the season. They establish an agreed upon price, and then he is, receives their crop. And in the process of doing that, he also, he's so focused on the entire process that, that he, he didn't just want to engage them in the wheat crops, but he also has decided to buy peanuts from them because peanuts are a great crop to put nitrogens back into the soil and, and repair the soils after growing wheat. So to support the idea of crop rotation, as well as Oil fixing, he paid them to paint to plant peanuts so that he would have a great wheat product product from them. So he buys the peanuts that they produce and he buys the wheat that they produce, and it's a it's like a full circle type of deal. And so we are he offered these peanuts to a lot of folks, and, and I think we're kind of the last restaurant standing on on a lot of them because they're rather labor intensive. But what, what he does is he buys the peanuts, well, the farmers harvest them and then they they turn a bunch back into the ground, but they also harvest them and they dry them to just shelf stable. So they're not roasted like what you would get at, at the ball game. They are just dried 
to the point where you can keep them and they won't go bad on you. So what I would consider them to be is kind of a, a raw, unshelled peanut. And what do you do with it? We take them and we pressure cook them. We use a pressure cooker in the restaurant quite a bit for a lot of different items. In particular, yeah, we, we pressure cook these peas. We cook them a, a lot like you would cook any bean or field pea that's been dried. But, but we choose to pressure cook these and, and the texture that comes out is, is pretty unique and interesting. And also considering the story behind them, a really great representation of who we are as far as uh, the community and harvest of peanuts that are regenerating soil, as well as representing a dish that is important in the South. And yeah, and, and doing it with, uh, with a technique that, that is, pretty classic but maybe not well known and produces a result that is it's fantastic yeah unique and interesting and delicious what is the rest of the dish because it's only it's not only peanuts do you have in that dish so the dish has uh recently evolved we did it first iteration was with burnt benny like a burnt benny honey mustard so the benny seeds that i was speaking about earlier and and then with some like pickled mustard seeds and and uh uh, buttermilk that we thickened up just a little bit to uh, recently a, a peach peach and peanut dish that also had a buttermilk company. And then more recently, the new iteration is spaghetti, like kind of a slightly spicy spaghetti squash with the peanuts and a little bit of buttermilk as well. But I guess you could say that, that typically the, um, the dish is about peanuts that have been glazed with a little bit of puree that matches with the buttermilk. And the buttermilk really provides a roundness in the mouthfeel and a heartness in the flavor that kind of cut some of the glaziness of the peanut. That's a, a really a, a good dish. And unfortunately, I cannot make that and use that uh, ingredient in my kitchen here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you get a if you get a pressure cooker, I will send you some peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say I am in my kitchen and I want to do something special with a rice dish. That's something that I can easily do. What would you suggest to a home cook to do something unique and new around you know rice? I find myself always in this world where I'm learning more and more about rice as a product itself. I feel like we are in an era where rice is really becoming, at least I felt growing up and even maybe as a young cook, like kind of rice was rice. I mean, you had arborio rice, I mean, you, you have your risotto rices and you have your basmati rices and you have your kind of standard, the rice that you can cook in the microwave, you know, the, but to me, kind of for years, it felt like there was only those archetypes of rice. And I feel that now we're in an era where rices are coming available that are just so individually unique and so remarkable for the flavors they offer and, and for the shapes that they are. And I think that seeking out rices that are unique and, and have depth of flavor and learning how to cook them properly. I think that the greatest mistake that happens with rice most often is that it's just not cooked properly. Learning how to cook the rice in a good way. There's a rice that we work with at 
the restaurant that I think is one of the best rices in the world. It's called Carolina Gold Rice. It's pretty well known at this point. We buy it from a company called Anson Mills in South Carolina. And the rice is challenging. If you, if you cook the rice like most Americans have grown to cook rice, it turns out not very good. <laughs> it tastes good, but it texturally it's off. And, and um, a great example is my mother loves the rice and loves it when I cook the rice, but she, and she has bought it for herself, but she stopped buying it for herself until I come there and show her exactly how to cook the rice. She doesn't want to cook anymore because it doesn't turn out the same. And so I just think that, and it's not a particularly challenging thing to cook. It just requires you to think about cooking rice in a different way. What's best for each individual rice. And another example is like we use a rice right now from Louisiana that is like a, an exceptionally long grain. We actually, we actually pressure cook that rice and it turns out really, really nice. Yeah. I would say the start is to buy rices that you're, you know, don't settle for the rice that's in the, you know, in that long, you know, cylindrical bag at the grocery store and, and seek out rices that cost more money and and that probably have some kind of and, and a great place to start with that is you know any of the asian markets i mean if you really want to spend some money on rice that's where you start <laughs> and buy some rices that are sushi grade rice or whatever but but starting there and then really just paying attention to what what each rice needs how how it needs to be treated making sure that your ratios are right and that you're paying attention to you know, if it's a rice that needs to come to a boil and then be turned to a simmer, paying attention closely so that you don't boil the heck out of it for five minutes before you realize that you need to turn it down or, you know, just being thoughtful about it. With what would you serve, you know, the rice? I really like to serve fish with rice. Really like to serve, geez, I think we've, I think the last probably six fish dishes at the restaurant have been some form of a soup or a liquid with a, a mound of rice and a piece of fish, which is probably like one of the most kind of ubiquitous, culturally ubiquitous ways to serve rice, I think, is fish and soup. <laughs> you know, like I feel like rice, fish and soup is like everywhere. And that's how I like to serve it. And that's, that's how I like, yeah, fish and rice. Okay, so we are almost, you know, at the end. And I want to ask you a series of rapid fire questions. But before that, uh, I would like you to talk a little bit about your project uh, for 2019, which is a new place called Mignette. So what is Mignette? Well, firstly, Mignette, staying with the theme of naming restaurants after women in my life that are important, uh, Mignette is actually my wife's mother's name, and she goes by Minnie. And you'll probably get a kick out of this, but so Minnie was named Mignette, and for I think I think until she was like nineteen or twenty, thought that her name was a was a French word, that it was a French name, and met someone from France, and they said absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it really works for us because some of the ideas that we are approaching in this restaurant are very much kind of 
And my mother-in-law is from Texas. And so we're very much approaching ideas of Texas food and, and Southern food in general, but Texas food. And then, and then also kind of some French notes as well, because we are, we're going to be offering a bakery and a, a, it's a bakery diner kind of takeaway spot. Really thrilled the team that is currently operating a chef cuisine at Olame is going to go down there and, and become partners and run that restaurant. And it gives us an opportunity to, I think, reach more people and it will be inside of a, a marketplace. The team who created the ferry building market in San Francisco and Oxbow Market in Napa are the team that are leading this project. And I feel that those two, those two spaces and ideas are, are remarkable and well trafficked. And, and I'm excited to kind of be in a marketplace and have the opportunity to do food that has a lot of the same ideals that we ha- offer at Olame, but on a more casual set of basis. And then, honestly, just it'll be a little bit cheaper, um, which will be really nice. Well, I wish you a lot of luck for your uh, and all the best for your new adventure here. Thank you. Are you reserving? Uh, I don't know if there's a table or there's tables in the restaurant. Or did... there's always a table for you. <laughs> okay, so let's let's go with the. Um, <laughs> A series of uh, rapid fire questions. So, where do you eat in Austin when you when you are off the clock? We eat at Bufalina. We eat at uh, Now Suerte is open, a new uh, Mexican restaurant that uses local ingredients and uh, presents Mexican flavors in a maybe new and unconventional way. And then we also eat like some of the classics. Like there's a Tex-Mex place near our house called Matt's El Rancho that's been open forever and serves just like down and dirty Tex-Mex food. And we eat, I would say, we like to go to see our friends at restaurants. So if our friend is a friend opened, a, was is a general manager of a new restaurant that opened this weekend. So we went to see her. It's called Joanne's. It's on South Congress. And it's great. And it, But it's it's also so often about just going to support the rest of our restaurant community. So you talked that you are collecting the cookbook uh, from the South, uh, Southern cookbook. So what is your favorite one? Taste of Country Cooking by Edna Lewis. Edna Lewis is kind of the matron of Southern food. Taste of Country Cooking is the quintessential book by her. And it is organized seasonally. So it just on almost every level speaks to who I am as a cook and how the restaurant is as a restaurant. And and in addition, I was lucky enough, Miss um, Lewis passed away a number of years ago. But I am lucky enough to have gotten a copy, a signed copy of Taste of Country Cooking from my parents. And just as a book that means a lot to me. So give me three dishes that you could not live without cooking or eating. Oh, wow. I think. Most of my cooks and friends know that I I like beef, I like steak, I like I love to cook rib roast, and I love to cook ribeye. I would say that beyond that, I love mashed potatoes. I like to cook mashed potatoes. I'm very particular about mashed potatoes. I do recognize that I'm saying meat and potatoes, <laughs> but uh, but it's just. Those are things that I, and then I do, I love fried chicken. Uh, I don't eat it very often. I love it. And it's, it was, you know, 
as a kid, something that I cooked with my mom that I always enjoyed cooking. It's not something I, I cook often. It's not something I eat that often, but, but it is something that feels very like it's like a direct, a direct hit on my heart. So I think I know the next answer. Are you butter or olive oil? <laughs> oh, I'm so butter. <laughs> I love olive oil. I love olive oil. I think it's so great, but I just, yeah, butter is so fantastic. Okay. Thank you very much, Chef, for uh, joining us at um, uh, Flavors Unknown. I was very um, happy to have you, you know, on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me and, and putting up with my long drawn out answers. And it's a real good time. Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about, because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review or a rating as it helps other people to find it as well. If you have friends that are foodies, please send this podcast their way as I am always happy to have more people listening. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.